the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hello, and welcome to In the Word, a ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. I'm your host, Nate Elliott, as we join Senior Pastor Will Ramirez in the book of Exodus. God had kept his promises delivering the Israelites out of the hand of the Egyptians, and then provided food for them as they journeyed to their promised land. But they doubted God and complained. We join Pastor Will in Exodus chapter 17, verse 6. Verse 6, Behold, I will stand before you there upon the rock in Horeb, and you shall smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it that the people may drink. Moses did it, so it did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. I imagine that Moses could have felt very alone, maybe probably felt very alone. But the Lord lets him know when you get up there to address the people and you tell them what you're going to do, what the solution's going to be, you won't be alone, Moses. I'll be right in front of you, right with you every step of the way. You know, the Bible uses similar language when Paul was at a lonely low point in Acts 23, 11. It says, and the Lord stood by him and he said, don't be afraid, Paul. Do you know that the Lord is standing by you too? You're never alone. You know, in that work environment situation that seems so difficult, or in that marriage where it feels like you're the only one trying, or with a situation where your kids have gone astray and it seems like nothing works as you try to bring them back into the fold, you're not alone. You're not in this alone. The Lord is standing right with you, and he will never leave you, and he will never forsake you, no matter how crazy it sounds. He tells me, he says, you go up there, I'll be with you, and then smack the rock with your rod, and water will come out. It's almost like it says to him, go get the mail, Moses, you know? <laughs> Simplicity. And yet for Moses, it just says, and Moses did so. He went and got the mail. He did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And it makes no big deal about the fact that water just came out of a rock. It just states it matter-of-factly. No arguing for Moses. Just simple obedience as if the Lord had asked him for the simplest of tasks. Is it a wonder that Numbers 12 verse 3 calls Moses the meekest man in all the earth? I so long for this kind of faith that always obeys as if it's the most simple of tasks. Because truly it is, right? God has no degree of difficulty, does he? So then why should I think any task he sets me on is greater than another? They're not. In his mind, there is no degree of difficulty. It's just, it's just due. It's just done as far as he's concerned. Now, we might ask the question, all right, Will, you know, this is starting to get a little old. That God delivers them mightily through the Red Sea experience. They can't find water for one day. They whine. God rebukes them and says, I'm testing you to see if you'll follow me. They run out of food. They whine. They don't pass that test. Now they're thirsty. They don't pass that test. Why does God keep providing for them when they have such a horrid attitude? Well, they needed water, right? I mean, you can't live for very long without it. So it was a real need. And God knows our frame, that we're simply dust. And he desires for all of us to be like Moses, to just trust him and just obey him out of simplicity. But he has compassion on us even when we don't. And God has always been this way. Turn to John chapter 7 with me. 
But as you're reading along in the beginning here, there's a, the Feast of Tabernacles is getting close. And so it's going to be time to travel down to Jerusalem from Galilee. And in verse three, his brothers who did not believe in him, they said, depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples may also see the work that you're doing. They're mocking him. Hey, you need to go down to the feast a little early, man. Set up your little party tent, you know, and show everybody all your miracles and stuff, brother. For it says in verse four, they said, for there is no man that does anything in secret, but he himself seeks to be known openly. They thought he had a Messiah complex. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for neither did his brothers believe in him. So Jesus, you know, graciously responds to them. Then we get down to verse 10. His brothers go up, but he goes up later on, not openly, but as it were in secret. And so in verse 11, the Jews are looking for him at the feast saying, where is he? And there was much murmuring amongst the people concerning him. For some said, well, he's a good man, but others said, no, he's deceiving. He's leading the people as That's not a very good reputation that people are speaking about him in that way. Jesus has a few different run-ins over doctrine with them. And in verse 20, look at what the people say about him. The people answered and said, you're demon-possessed. You have a devil. Who's trying to kill you? I mean, that's pretty harsh accusation, wouldn't you say? And then it goes down further. And if you keep reading, you see all these negative things that they keep saying about Jesus. But here, verse 37, the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood up. And he cried out saying, if any of you, any of you, some of you, the ones that called me demon possessed, my own brothers who don't believe in me have been mocking me. Those of you who think I've been deceiving the people, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. For he that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly, his innermost being shall flow or gush rivers or torrents of living water. Think of it. The sinless son of God who went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed of the devil, being critiqued like this. And yet humanity does the same in every generation. They critique Jesus. And at times you hear people say things and you just think, what is wrong with us? He's an amazing man. All he ever did was do good things. And people say, oh, if God is a God of love, X, Y, Z. Or I can't believe in the God of the Bible because of X, Y, Z. Or Jesus, he's not exactly everything he's cut out to be or you make him out to be. You know what wouldn't have shocked me? If on this great day, last day of the feast, if Jesus stood up and said, you know what, wicked generation, I've had it. That would not have shocked me at all. What shocked me is the offer of verse 37 and 38, because that is divine love. A love that cries out to those who've accused you of being demon-possessed and deceiving people and says, come, if you're thirsty, I'll give you everything you need. Everything you need. Well, Israel, they do not pass the test back in Exodus. They are angry, they complain, they murmur. God provides. But at the very end here in verse seven, it says that Moses called the name of the place. It was formerly called Rephidim, but now he calls the name of the place Massa and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? The word Massa means temptation. The word Meribah means strife or contention. And you know, despite all of God's grace, this is the sad testimony of Israel's journey. I don't want the path of my life to be labeled with these names. That we look back at the leak experience and it's called Meribah or, you know, what's the other one? Massa, you know? I don't want the path of my life to be labeled with those titles, those names. I want the path of my life to reflect names of trusting in the Lord. See, because it says here that was their problem. They were tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? I mean, that was their beef with Moses. It's almost like they came to Moses. Moses, get that cloud to do something, man. You know, it's just sitting there and we need water. Get that cloud to take some action. Is the Lord there or not, basically? And, you know, I hear that and I just go, ouch, man. I don't want to ever be guilty of that mindset. Let none of us be guilty of that mindset. 
Well, just as God delivers him from this trial, verse 8, a new trial springs up right there in the same spot of Rephidim. Then came Amalek and fought with Israel in Rephidim. Now, Amalek was one of Esau's grandsons, so not exactly on happy terms with the people of Israel. He became a tribal chieftain over a group of nomad raiders who lived in this desert region. They would prey upon the sick and the weak of an area, you know, a town. They would attack it while the men were out. They would prey upon those who were helpless. And so the Amalekites became bitter enemies of Israel, and that bad relationship starts right here. For if we read Deuteronomy 25, 17, and 18, it explains how they fought with Israel, what they did. It says this, Moses reminding Israel of what the Amalekites did, said, remember what Amalek did unto you by the way when you were come forth out of Egypt? How he met you by the way and he smote the hindmost, the people that were lagging behind of you, even all that were feeble behind you when you were faint and weary and he feared not God. They looked for people that maybe had been injured or people who were frail or sick and they preyed upon them. They robbed them. They stole from them. They killed them. And so this is what's happening as they're in Rephidim. All of a sudden, the weaker parts of the camp are getting attacked at night. And so Moses says unto Joshua, choose out men and go out and fight with Amalek. The only way that they would deal with them is by initiating a frontal confrontation, a full-scale confrontation. No more raids, no more, you know, we're going to go out and find them and we're going to fight them. So he says to Joshua, choose out men and go out to fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with a rod of God in my hand. This is the first mention of Joshua in the Bible. And at this point, we have no clue who he is. He just bursts onto the scene as someone that Moses trusts. We know from other passages that he's actually a leader from the tribe of Ephraim. It calls him a prince of Ephraim. And so he's also had the trust of the people. What we're going to see here in chapter 17 as he comes onto the scene, through this little glimpse of Joshua's life here, we're going to see that this is the man that Moses expected to lead after he was gone. So he's going to choose out men to go fight. And then tomorrow, Tomorrow, they're going to go out to fight and Moses will stand up on the hill with the rod of God in his hand. So the implication is that while Joshua fights the physical battle, Moses will fight the spiritual battle, that he will go up to pray for them while they fight against Amalek. So verse 10, Joshua did as Moses said unto him and he fought with Amalek. Moses and Aaron and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Now, according to Josephus, Hur was Miriam's husband, Moses' sister's husband. We don't know that for sure because the Bible doesn't say that anywhere. That's just tradition. The Bible does say, though, that he was a leader or prince from the tribe of Judah. He was grandfather to Bezalel. This was the guy who was the architect who oversaw the building of the tabernacle. We also know that Moses leaned upon him as one of his trusted leaders because he and Aaron were the two left in charge, and Moses went on top of Sinai to receive the law. I'm pretty sure when Moses came back, he wished he hadn't promoted those two. <laughs> now, why does he take Aaron and her with him? The Bible doesn't say. I do think that Moses seems to realize that he's going to need help upholding the people spiritually. So verse 11, and it came to pass that when Moses held up his hand, he was holding the rod, when he held, it, held his hands up with the rod, that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. The idea is he's lifting up the rod in prayer and praying that Israel was being, is there chasing the enemy and whooping the enemy. But then as he's resting his hands, you hold your hands up like that, you get tired. As he's taking some time to rest his hands, the Amalekites start winning the battle. So the implication is that they were supernaturally empowered when Moses lifted his staff in prayer 
but they weren't when he rested his arm. Now, I read that, and I just kind of want to just keep going because I think, what in the world is that? I mean, I'd like to find that staff. It would be like, argument with the wife going bad. Kids aren't doing the chores. Like the staff. I'm sure it didn't work like that. There wasn't magic in the staff or in his position of the raised arms. That There was nothing magical about that. To be just frank with you, we don't know why it worked that way. God just did it that way. But what I can say is that this teaches us a few important things about prayer. Number one, God supernaturally works through prayer. I mean, that that is something that this does teach us, that whatever we don't understand, we do understand that God supernaturally does things through prayer. There are times, I know you felt it because I felt it, where you pray and you think... This isn't going to happen. You know, your intellectual mind goes, I'm just praying something, but I know this person. They're never going to change. But then you watch what God does. Prayer does work. God supernaturally works through prayer. Number two, we sometimes have a part to play in addition to praying. Even though Moses was holding the staff, Joshua had to go out to fight. And so there are times when, yes, we're called to pray, but there are also times when we're also called to act. And Pastor Chuck used to teach us, he said, do your best and commit the rest. And that's a rule I try to live by. I'm going to work my hardest, do the very best I can, and then leave the chips in the Lord's hands and entrust everything to him actively in prayer. Number three, Our prayers, or lack thereof, can affect the outcome of a situation. That's something we learn here about prayer, that our prayers, or lack thereof, can affect the outcome of a situation. We were at Bible college, and we had a Reformed friend of ours, and he struggled with prayer. That's no insult to them. He was a good man. That guy loved the Word, loved God, honorable man, good brother. But he struggled with prayer because the idea was, well, if God's sovereign and can't you know, change his mind or anything like that, then why pray? Because it's not going to change things. And he would struggle with that. But the truth is, the Bible says that you have not because you what? Ask not it. God has sovereignly chosen to work through prayer. And he has sovereignly chosen that if we don't pray, he's not going to work sometimes. Now, I don't know how that works, but that's what he said. We see it here, that our prayers or lack of prayers can affect the outcome of a situation. Therefore, it is important to pray. We need to pray because prayer does affect things. In addition to teaching us something about prayer, it also teaches us something about leadership. And it teaches us that no man, no matter how godly, can impact a large group of people by himself. Look at verse 12. But Moses' hands were heavy or grew heavy. They grew weary. And so they took a stone and they put it under him so he could sit down on it. And then Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands. I imagine Moses was probably a tall guy if he had to sit so they could hold up his hands. And Aaron and Hur stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the one on the other side, so that his stands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. That's one reason I have a King James Bible, because you will never see that word anywhere else. You will not turn on Sports Center and see, oh, the, uh, the Warriors, the Golden State Warriors, discomfited the Portland Trailblazers tonight. You're not going to see that. So it just means to defeat. So Joshua defeated the Amalekites and his people with the edge of the sword. Now, when it mentions that Moses' hands grew heavy, have you ever experienced having to raise your hands for a long time? It get heavy. You have to hold something up. Or we used to do these exercises where you had to stand on your tippy toes and do this in baseball practice. And you get tired. It starts to ache. You know, they begin to feel like boulders aching to the point where you can't hold them up anymore. And so they want to win the battle and they want to keep praying and hold the staff up. And so they sit them on this rock and they, it says, stayed up his hands. The word there, stayed up, means to give aid to another to ensure a successful outcome so that his hands wouldn't fall. It comes with the idea that you are keeping the other person from falling and failing. Listen, this is especially true for leaders, but it's true for any of us. The moment we get isolated and we have no one else who can help us hold up our arms is the moment we begin to be defeated. 
It is. That's what happens. The enemy likes to isolate us. And for leaders in particular, because they get hurt or they get frustrated because things aren't going the way they want to go, we can easily isolate ourselves to a place where we're not looking for help. We're not confessing our need. We're not building a team around us where there's openness and and yieldedness to one another. Moses was a good leader, and he had a good man in Joshua to lead his warriors but he couldn't do this task faithfully without help. You know, when God wants to move, he will give a man a vision and then he will stir up the hearts of others around that man to help him accomplish that vision. Everyone couldn't be Moses, but everyone was equally important to accomplishing the task that God gave Moses. You know, in Calvary Chapel, a lot of times people ask me and say, what kind of church leadership do you have or church government do you have? And there's lots of church governments. When I describe our church government, they're kind of like, well, that's different. Because it is. It's, it's a little bit different than what you might find in most churches. But the idea that we have is that God calls a man, gives him a vision, and then God raises up a team of people around him that share in his heart, share in his vision, and then they lock arms together to use their individual unique gifts and talents to accomplish that task. That's what I believe. That's what I believe I see in the scripture. That's what I believe God does when he does a work. You know, certain tasks in the church won't always feel glorious. But the truth is you and I will get the same reward as those who are out front because the task can't be accomplished without you. And truth be told, every move of God will be limited by the sacrificial service of its team, not just its leader. I'm fully and painfully aware. I've been doing this for 20 years. I can impact a very short, very small amount of people. But if I build a team around me of men and women who love God and who will reach out to others as well, there is no limit to who we can reach. None. Where does that apply to you? Well, let me encourage you and let me challenge you a little bit tonight. God isn't going to send a ton of unbelievers to our church if we don't have those who are willing to make the sacrifice of personal time to befriend them and disciple them. So if we want to see God do a move, if we want to see God reach our city, then we all need to make that choice in our hearts and say, Lord, what are you asking me to do? What part are you asking me to play? What place do I have in the body of Christ? How can I give me one person to befriend, one person that I can pour into this year? Think of how many people we could reach if every one of us took one person under our wing. Now, you might be here tonight and be saying, I can't take anybody under my wing. I'm a baby Christian. Good. You know more than the person who just got saved today. Someone described it this way. Being a disciple or discipling somebody, leading somebody or, or pouring into somebody is just one beggar trying to tell the other beggar where he found food. You've learned some things. You've grown in some ways. Find someone who maybe doesn't know that. If you're a mom or a dad and you've raised kids or your kids have gotten older, you can help out that young mom who's holding that very first baby and goes, what am I doing? <laughs> they may not tell you that. Sometimes I've seen moms or dads you know, get frustrated because they don't want to hear anything I have to say. Who does at that age? Nobody at that age wants to hear anything. When you're 22, you've got the world figured out. I was way smarter 20 years ago than I am now. Way, I had way more of life figured out 20 years ago than I do now. But that doesn't mean we don't need it. It doesn't mean we don't need that mentoring. I was so blessed. You know, I had another pastor considerably older than I am. And I asked him, you know, some questions about some areas that I was, I was like, I don't know what to do with this situation. Man, that guy gave me wisdom because he's been doing it for 30 more years than I have. Yeah, I've been doing it for 20, but he's been doing it for 50. Good wisdom good encouragement. We all need that. We all need to say, Lord, give me one person that I can pour into. Coworker, somebody here at church, somebody in the neighborhood, somebody that I can befriend and pour my life into. Because unless God's called you home, your job isn't done. Well, they find victory over Amalek. And so verse 14, the Lord says unto Moses, write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of who? 
Joshua, interesting. For I will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. This is the seed of Joshua's call to be the leader after Moses. He says, I want you to write this down in a book and you rehearse it in the ears of Joshua so he never forgets what happened today. Why? Because the battle with Amalek has just begun and it will not be finished until I utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. The word there, utterly put out, means to destroy, to annihilate, to wipe out. Unlike some nations that Israel would conquer, there would be no sparing of the Amalekites because of their actions today. Verse 15, And Moses built an altar, and he called the name of it Jehovah Nissi. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn that he, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. It's interesting. It doesn't say that Moses built an altar in front of all the people. It mentions that God told him to do these other things in front of the people. It's my personal opinion. This was something Moses did privately. He builds an altar and he calls the name of it Jehovah Nissi, which means the Lord, my banner, or the Lord is my banner. The banner that's being referred to here would be the victory flag that would be planted somewhere after a successful battle. Now, why did he call God his victory victory flag? Well, verse 16, for he said, because the Lord has sworn that the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. That's probably a bad translation. It literally literally reads this. For the hand that was raised to the throne of the Lord had a response of war with Amalek from generation to generation. Now, some people saw this as God's hand raised and the idea that God was swearing, he was making a promise that he would have war with Amalek for all generations. But most modern translators, and I believe correctly, see it as Moses' raised hands in battle, that he was raising those hands in battle and that he was asking God for victory and that God responded by saying, I will fight for you against Amalek, Moses. I will answer your prayer. I believe that's the correct understanding and it makes more sense why Moses would build this altar because God had been faithful to answer his prayers. Unlike Rephidim, which was renamed for Israel's failure to trust God, Moses makes this altar because God answered his prayer when he trusted him to come through. And isn't that a better way to go through a trial? I mean, God's going to provide either way because he loves you and he's gracious. But don't you want to come through the trial and look back and, and call it Jehovah Nissi instead of Meribah and Massa? I want that. How many times, I, you know, in my life I've had a trial, you know, and then God finally comes through and I look back and I'm going, it was right around the corner. You were going to come through right here and I lost hope, I lost heart, and I took it in my own hands. And now I just kind of sit here and go, yep, Meribah and Mara. You know, Moses trusted the Lord and so he could say, this place is called Jehovah Nissi. The Lord is my victory flag. There's something else I'd like to share with you. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. This is at least 1,500 years later, Paul writing to us as Christians. And he says, moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant, which means that this is a struggle. It's easy for us to miss this. So he says, brethren, I don't want that you should be ignorant how that all of our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the Red Sea. All were baptized unto Moses in that cloud and in that sea. He likens baptism to the Red Sea experience. In the same way, Egypt, was like our before Christ experience. That was our our life before Christ. And so we come through, we get saved, we come out of Egypt, we go through a Red Sea experience, a baptism, so to speak, where now we're identified with Christ rather than being identified with Egypt anymore, our old life. But then he goes on, he says, and they did all eat that same spiritual food, the manna. And they did all drink the same spiritual drink, the water from the rock. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was who? 
Christ. The water was Christ. You know, the rock that provided the water was Christ. The Red Sea was like baptism. He says, all of these things are images that reflect our walk with the Lord. If we read in John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven, right? Jesus in John 7, we read earlier, he says, come unto me, all you that are thirsty. And what? Out of your innermost being will gush rivers of living water. See, this is why the woman at the well knew exactly what Jesus was talking about when he offered her living water. You know, he said, can I have a drink? And she says, why are you asking me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. You're a man. I'm a woman. We don't talk. And he said, you know, if you knew who it was that was asking you for a drink, you would ask him for a drink of living water. Oh, she knew exactly what he meant because she said to him, give me that water now. She's like, I want you to forget this well. I want one of those rocks that Israel had in the desert. You know, you just tap on it. Water comes out. No charge either, you know. But Jesus, in that conversation with her, ended up saying that he was what she needed. Sometimes I think we lose focus when we see these miraculous events in the Old Testament, and we wish for things like that for us. Lord, I want supernatural food and water. But we miss the point, like the people did in John 6 and John 7. Jesus is better than all those things because all those things pointed to him. He is our living water. He is our bread of life. He is our manna. Okay, one more thought. In the same way, Amalek is symbolic too. As Egypt was a picture of our life before Christ, Amalek is a picture of our flesh. See, it's the battle that every Christian faces after he's saved, to walk in the spirit and not after the flesh. God has only one solution for the flesh, one solution for Amalek, right? Total eradication. The flesh doesn't play fair. It preys upon our weakest points. Therefore, there can be no peace treaty, no compromise with it. The only option is to eradicate it. Jesus said, if your right eye offends you, what? Pluck it out. If your right hand offends you, lop it off. We have an eye plucker outer out there, you know, for all of you who are struggling. No, no, that's not what Jesus is talking about. What he's saying is there can be no peace treaty with our flesh. And what we do with our flesh sometimes is we do that. We make treaties, we make compromises with ourselves. We say, well, this isn't so bad, you know, I'll just allow this. And what happens? We end up way down the road because it doesn't work that way. The flesh will never be satisfied and therefore it must be eradicated. And so I would just ask you, you know, are you content with Jesus for your spiritual sustenance every day? Is he enough for you? And are you making compromises with your flesh? Because the Lord so desires to set us free from that. We've learned in Romans that we have been set free from that. We just need to walk in it by faith. God loves us. He wants to bless us with more of his presence and his spirit. In following Him, He will provide all we need. All we must do is trust Him. Take Him at His word. While we are in this time of a global pandemic, don't be afraid to call and ask for assistance or for prayer. Our office may be closed, but you can still reach us at Calvary Chapel Orlando at 407-523-0800 during our office hours Tuesday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. This has been In the Word with Pastor Will, a ministry of Calvary Chapel Orlando. You can listen to all of Pastor Will's sermons and find other valuable resources online at www.calvarychapelorlando.com or on the Calvary Chapel Orlando app, available on iTunes and Google Play. Thank you for joining us today. We will see you next time as we continue to learn, walk, and live in the Word.